Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. And we'll read this morning from verse 38 to the end of the chapter. Verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return into my house from whence I came out, and when he has come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goes and takes with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Well, he had talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said to him, Behold, your mother and your brethren stand outside, desiring to speak with you. But he answered and said unto them, unto him that told him, Who is my mother and my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray again. Oh, Heavenly Father, we... Lord, we so need you to enable us to see the things, Lord, that you have in your word, the things that you have spoken to us. Lord, these things that we read in the Bible are so often so foreign to the way that we think and the way that we're taught to think by the world that we live in. I just pray, Lord, that this morning you would help us to understand, give us wisdom and understanding in the revelation of your Son and cause us to see how beautiful you are and how much you are worthy, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the, the Bible defines faith in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. You may be familiar with this. As uh, I'm going to quote from the King James, faith is the, uh, uh, what does the King James say again? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Thank you. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's how the King James defines faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. But let me give a better translation than, as the King James does. Faith is the foundation of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In the, in the Greek, the word substance is actually hypostasis, which is foundation. So faith is the reason why you have hope. 
You have hope because you have faith. Those two words are interrelated and, and closely related. Now, in the Bible, certainly hope is not as we imagine hope in the English. Hope in the English is something kind of wishful, like, I hope I'm going to get to heaven. I, and I, I often tell students this on campus. I explain how hope is different in English than in the Bible. Hope in English, when we say I hope, is like, I, I hope the ice cream truck is going to come by today, right? I hope it is. I don't know, but I want it to. But in the Bible, hope is a confident expectation. So if you have biblical hope that the ice cream truck is going to come, you're actually standing out on the sidewalk waiting it'll be here in about a minute. I'm expecting it to be here. Why? Because I have faith. Faith in the, in the King James says is the evidence of things not seen. A better translation from the Greek would be it's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is a synonym for the word conviction. Because I'm convinced by reasons for whatever reason, that the ice cream truck is going to come by in one minute, I'm standing on the sidewalk confidently expecting it to come by in about a minute. So if it doesn't come by, I'll be sorely uh, shocked and disappointed. So that really goes against the common idea that you hear today about what faith is. Kind of the common definition of faith on the street is something that you believe without reason, right? You often hear that in conversation about religion. There's there's science and reason, and then there's religion and faith, right? And faith is just something that has no basis in religion or reality. It's just something that you believe. You just choose to believe it. Brothers and sisters, that is not the definition of faith that the Bible gives. And God never uh, requires you to believe in something for no reason. If you can believe in something without any reason, you can pretty much believe in anything. And God doesn't want you to do that. Faith is a conviction that you have based upon reason of something you don't see. I'll tell students this often. I'll ask them, do you drive? And most of them will say, yeah, I drive. I said, when was the last time you drove? Well, this morning. So I say, well, when you, when you got into your car this morning, did you, did you first get underneath the car and, and double check to see if the brakes were on the car? Did you do that? And they go, of course not. I didn't do that. No, I said, well, if the brakes weren't there, you would never have gotten in that car, right? Because that would have been putting your life in danger, right? Yeah. So is it possible that someone could have stolen the brakes off of the car in the middle of the night? Yes. So it's possible that the brakes weren't there, but yet you chose to get into the car and risk your own life just believing that the brakes were there, right? They say, yeah. And I said, that's faith. You believed the brakes were there, but you had a reason to believe they were there, right? They were there yesterday, and you had no reason to believe anyone would steal them in the middle of the night. So you were convinced they were there. You didn't check. You got in. That is what Hebrews 11.1 is talking about. A conviction of something you don't see. You don't see the brakes are there, but you're convinced they're there. And therefore, you have a confident expectation that when you get into that car, it's going to have brakes. When you push that pedal, you're not going to die. Right? Now, God never requires us to believe without reason, but what this does, brothers and sisters, is it makes us accountable if we don't believe in the face of reasons. When we do have reasons to believe in God and in Christ, if we don't believe, then we become without excuse, the Bible says. It shows we're stubborn. It shows we're wicked. Now, the Pharisees come to Jesus here, as we read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, and they ask him for a sign. Basically, they're asking him for evidence Give us some evidence that you are who you say you are. Give us some evidence that you are the Son of God, the Messiah. Give us a sign from heaven. Now remember, brothers and sisters, that 
we are to believe based upon evidence. So it's certainly not wrong to require evidence in order to believe. It's not wrong to look for a sign or to ask for a sign. In fact, asking for a sign or, or being given signs to believe is common in the Old Testament. You remember when Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, God says, let the people go, right? Well, Pharaoh says, who's God? I don't know who God is. I don't want to let the people go. Uh, get out of here. And Moses proceeds to give a series of signs to Pharaoh to show that God is indeed speaking through him and God is indeed calling the people out of Egypt. So God gave Pharaoh plenty of signs and Pharaoh continued to refuse. And the more he refused the signs, the more guilty and accountable he became. Or you remember Elijah on uh, Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal and the people. He said, let's do this little uh, test here. If God, if Jehovah is God, then fire's going to come down from heaven and consume this altar. And if Baal is God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume the altar when you guys pray. And whichever God answers by fire, that's the true God. So therefore, they had their little contest, and Jehovah answered by fire. Of course, if the people don't believe after having the evidence, then it shows that the problem's not with the evidence. The problem is with the people. We remember one more example from the Old Testament, and there's many. You remember Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah? He, uh, God says to go to Ahaz the king and say, ask of me as a sign um, for what Isaiah is saying will happen. And Ahaz, in his false piety, says, oh no, I shouldn't tempt the Lord and ask him for a sign. When God said, ask him for a sign. And then Isaiah says, the Lord will give you a sign, a virgin will conceive and give birth. Donald Hegner, a professor at Fuller, says, There is in principle nothing wrong with the desire for a sign from God. The request for a sign only becomes unjustified and intrinsically wrong when one is already surrounded by good and sufficient evidence one chooses not to accept. In that case, unreceptivity and unbelief are the root of the problem, and it is unlikely that any sign would be sufficient to change such a person's mind. This is what's going on in our text this morning. The Pharisees, think of it, all the things that Jesus has been doing, and they come to him and ask for a sign. Has that ever, you know, made you wonder whenever you've read that passage? Like, how are they asking for a sign after all the things that Jesus has done? Well, essentially, what they're saying to Jesus is, uh, we, need a, we need more evidence, Jesus, that you're of God. We need additional evidence. The evidence that you've given us is insufficient. We just saw last week that Jesus' deliverance, Mary, they took as evidence of the devil, right? So they thought that Jesus was of the devil because he was casting out these demons. They wanted a sign from God. They wanted some bulletproof uh, sign that Jesus was not working for the devil but for God. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, is that their heart was set against Christ. And no matter what evidence... Jesus brought forth for them because their hearts were set against Christ because they did not love Christ. They did not love God. They did not have God's word in their hearts, Jesus said. Because if they had God's word in their heart, they would have believed in him, right? So the problem was not a lack of evidence. The problem was their hearts. Jesus had already proved them wrong as we saw last week about this idea that 
his deliverance ministry was from the devil. He showed them how absurd that was and that truly his deliverance ministry was a sign of the kingdom of God. But beyond even just his deliverance ministry and his numerous miracles that Jesus had performed, there were other evidences that surrounded the Pharisees. The law and the prophets, Jesus said repeatedly, point to me. And if you had believed in Moses, and if you had believed in the prophets, you would have believed in me. You see, the time is right for the Messiah to come. And we've already talked about that, how the people were expecting the Messiah to come. Jesus came at just the right time. He was born in just the right place. He was born in Bethlehem. Jesus had a forerunner named John the Baptist who came and preached that the Messiah was coming right upon his heels. Just as Isaiah and Malachi prophesied that the forerunner would come. And John the Baptist stood as a witness that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Jesus' character showed that he was the Messiah. If the Pharisees had truly known God, if the Pharisees had truly understood the heart of God, they would have immediately recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. You'll remember that Matthew points to his character as proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Behold my servant, look at him, in whom I, God, delight. He won't strive or contend, and he'll bring forth justice and judgment to the Gentiles. What's exactly what Jesus was doing? In meekness, he was bringing forth and preaching righteousness. Had the Pharisees known God, they would have immediately recognized Christ. And many more things could be said. The problem was not a lack of evidence The problem was the heart of the Pharisees. And this is exactly what Jesus says, is it not? In verse 39, he says, you are an evil and adulterous generation. When he says an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, the meaning is not that they require evidence to believe. The, the, The meaning is an evil and adulterous people ask for a sign in the face of already sufficient evidence, showing that they don't really believe, showing that they don't really want to believe. They aren't going to believe. They're actually just trying to deflect the uh, blame upon God and the evidence instead of upon them. Oh, there's not enough evidence. That's why we don't believe Jesus. It's your fault. Trying to deflect blame. So brothers and sisters, let me just say that again. To not believe or to require more evidence when you already have sufficient evidence, shows a corruption in your heart. Shows that you're pretending the problem is not with you when it is. And I just want to apply this in another way. There are many people who say in this world, well, I don't believe in God because God hasn't sufficiently given me reasons to believe in him, but if God were to answer my prayer, and if God were to show up before me right now and do some miraculous thing in front of my eyes, then I'd believe. In a sense, what they're doing is asking for more evidence. They're asking for a sign. God, give me a sign that you're there. And if he doesn't, it's your fault that I don't believe, God. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You're not giving me sufficient evidence. And brothers and sisters, that sort of atheistic move is evil and adulterous. The Bible says that all men are without excuse. Why do we believe in God Brothers and sisters, we don't believe in God because there's a lack of evidence and somehow God has done some miraculous thing that has convinced us. We believe in God because of the abundance of evidence all around us of the existence of God. A person does not need for God to ever answer one of their prayers in order to believe in God. 
because of the sufficient evidence all around them that testifies of his eternal attributes and power. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, so that they are without excuse, it says. It doesn't mean God cannot give you a sign, and he might. But if he doesn't, you have no excuse. It would be evil to ask for more and put the blame upon him. Also, um, in our community here in, in Utah, there are many people who say, um, if you pray and ask God to find out whether our religion is true, and he'll give you a sign that it's true, uh, then you'll know that it's true. How do you know it's not true unless you pray and ask God for a sign? So there's many people that actually take up that challenge and they, they say, God, is it true or not? Let me suggest to you that that is evil and adulterous because there's sufficient evidence to know whether it's true or not. Have we not considered that evidence? And to say that there isn't sufficient evidence and I need a sign is to say, God, you haven't given us sufficient evidence to know anything, really. To know what is true and what isn't true. Brothers and sisters, God has given us the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings of the apostles. And if you take heed to that evidence, and if you incline your heart to it, and study it and read it, and don't just leave it there dusty on your shelf, then you'll have sufficient evidence to know whether this religion or that religion is true. You don't need to say, God, I need more. I need you to send an angel down. He might not. And if he doesn't, you have no excuse. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. So brothers and sisters, we see here in the, in the Pharisees an evil heart in this request. And yet, even so, Jesus does say that a sign will be given. In verse 39 he says, after saying an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, Jesus says that there shall no sign be given unto it, although the sentence does not end there. He says there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. The sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Now, in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verse 30, in the very same context, in the very same moment, only as described by Luke, Jesus says that Jonah was the sign. So turn to Luke 11, just so you can see that. So that kind of registers in your minds. The sign of Jonah is Jonah. Luke 11, verse 30. Verse 20, you can look at the, the verse right before it. When the people were gathered thick together and began to say, this is an evil, oh, he began to say, excuse me, Jesus began to say, this is an evil generation, they seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Look at verse 30. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man to this generation. So the sign of Jonah is, was actually Jonah himself as a sign to Nineveh. Now the Jewish people were fascinated by the story of Jonah. And you can understand why they would be fascinated by this. The Jewish people are very interested in uh, the truth of God being spread all over the world. And so in the Old Testament, you've got this story, fascinating, where a prophet from God is told to go to a Gentile city. He goes... He preaches, and the whole city repents. The whole city repents. 
And of course this should fascinate us as Christians too. What was going on there? And the Jewish people were fascinated by this and asked the question, what on earth caused Nineveh to repent? It's hard enough to get Israel to repent. (laughs) And the Jewish people, and I believe rightly so, and I think that Jesus actually picks up on this in 1130 when he says that Jonah was actually a sign to the Ninevites, the Jewish people actually believed that the reason why the Ninevites were so um, quick to repent is because they knew what had happened to Jonah and the fish. So that they, Jonah, of course, you know the story, um, didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that God was sending him, sending him there to preach in his mercy and Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to repent. Jonah wanted them to uh, burn, to perish. And yet, ironically, if this is true what the Jews thought, it's actually Jonah's running away from the task that actually brought Nineveh to repentance because by running away from the task, he had to get thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, was three days in the belly of a, of a fish, and God miraculously delivered him from that fish to go to preach to Nineveh. And if, if it's true, the Ninevites knew about the fish incidents and that's why they repented. Then the irony is that in him running away because he didn't want them to perish, they actually were saved. God seems to work like that in the Bible. What we mean for evil, he means for good. Isn't that interesting? As Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. And Jesus explicitly says what the sign of Jonah to the Ninevites was in Matthew 12:40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah was in the belly for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the earth. And this will be the sign that is given to this generation just like Jonah was the sign for them. Christ's resurrection is the sign for this evil and adulterous generation. The resurrection is the ultimate sign, brothers and sisters, that, God, that Jesus is of God because God delivered him from the earth and from death three days after he was crucified. Turn with me to John chapter 2. You'll remember that Actually, this sign of Jonah is spoken of a lot in the, in the Gospels. John chapter 2, verse 18. More than we think, actually. John chapter 2, verse 18. This is when Jesus has just entered the temple and made a whip and cast out the uh, money changers. The Pharisees come running in, not very happy about this at all. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign do you show unto us seeing that you do these things. Like, how dare you? You better give us a pretty good sign here. And Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now let me submit to you that that's the sign of Jonah, even though he doesn't say that. Then the Jews said, 40 and six years was this temple in building. Will you raise it in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture 
and the word which Jesus had said. So here they asked him, what sign can you give that you're doing this? And he said, the sign of Jonah, essentially. Destroy me, and in three days I will rise. Now though Matthew doesn't record that particular incident of Jesus in the temple and, and saying that he'll destroy, or saying that if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it again, um, it is alluded to in Matthew twice. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, this, this is probably all the flipping we'll do today, and then we'll go back to chapter 12. Matthew 26, 61. This shows the harmony of the Gospels as well, because Matthew doesn't record that earlier statement. Matthew, 20, Matthew 26, 61, they bring false witnesses to Jesus. He's been arrested, he's on trial, and the false witnesses are saying, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Of course, that's a false witness. He didn't say, I will destroy it, because he was talking about his own body. He said, you destroy it, and I'll raise it again in three days. So at his trial, they brought up this saying, the sign of Jonah. Turn to uh, the next chapter, Matthew 27, verse 40. Now Jesus is on the cross. Jesus on the cross, verse 40. Verse 39, they, went, they passed by and reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, you that destroyed the temple and build it, build it again in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. The tremendous attention given to this statement of Jesus about raising his body in three days as a sign that he's of God shows the extreme importance of this saying of Jesus. The fact that he said that was the sign and then they keep bringing it back into his face at his arrest, trial, and crucifixion shows, brothers and sisters, this is an extremely important sign that leaves all without excuse Think about it. They themselves are saying, if you are the son of God, you, you said you'd destroy the temple and raise it again. Of course, they didn't understand. Take yourself down from the cross. Well, three days later, he rose again. A sign that cannot be refuted and leaves all without excuse. If you don't believe in Christ, after knowing he's gone from the tomb after he said he would be, then it shows there's no problem with the evidence. There's a problem with you. Jesus goes on to say, the fact that men reject me means that on judgment day, the men of Nineveh will rise up in condemnation of those people. Because the, the Ninevites repented and they had less evidence to do so than you do so. This generation, Jesus says. The Ninevites believed the preaching of Jonah and yet one that's greater than Jonah is here. What a horrible thing And on Judgment Day. Remember, we're all going to be there one day, so this, this is relevant to, to you. What a horrible thing on Judgment Day to have someone else condemn you because they believed with less evidence and you had more evidence and you didn't believe. Jesus says, the Queen of Sheba will rise up on Judgment Day and condemn you. Because one is greater than Solomon. Why did she come to Solomon? Because she had heard of his wisdom. The Jews themselves said that when the Messiah comes, he'll be wiser than Solomon. 
Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here. On judgment day, if you don't believe me, Sheba is gonna, the queen of Sheba is going to rise up and condemn you because she had less evidence to believe in Solomon than you do to believe in me. It's interesting that in this chapter alone, Jesus has said that he's greater than the temple, he's greater than Jonah, and he's greater than Solomon. Remember in verse 6, when talking about the Sabbath, he said that one greater than the temple is here. One greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Solomon is here. It's interesting that that basically sums it all up. He's the greatest priest, prophet, and king. We often talk of Jesus being the prophet and the priest and the king from God. All other prophets, all other priests, and all other kings were merely shadows of the true prophet, priest, and king of kings, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is greater than all. He's the ultimate revelation of God to which all these things point. As the greater prophet of all, he is the one who truly speaks for God and makes God known. Do you believe that? Jesus alone truly speaks for God and makes God known. All other prophets pointed to him. As the priest, he's greater than the temple. He is the only one who can make you right with God by his blood. No priest, no other priest, and no other temple ritual can make you right with God. The temple and the priest pointed to him. Jesus Christ alone can make you right with God by his blood. And he alone is the true king. All other kings and authorities point to him, the true king of kings. He only has the right to rule us, and he only can rule us and bring order to our chaotic world. Brothers and sisters, to disbelieve in Jesus is to fail to understand the whole point of your existence, to not know God and to hopelessly condemn yourself. You miss out on the point of life for lesser things that point to him. In verse 43 and 45, Jesus lets us know what he thinks about this generation. He describes the condition of the Pharisees and their followers. It's quite grim, isn't it? This is how Jesus viewed the Pharisees and their followers. Basically, they had evil spirits, lots of them. Right? Isn't that amazing? Verse 43 and 45. The unclean spirit goes out, comes back with seven more ugly. That's what it's like with this generation. Now, most would never have guessed that. You see, if you were to look at the Pharisees and their followers, they look so righteous. They look so devout. They professed worship in the one true God. And they were interested in in morality and doing what was right. Jesus says, they're filled with unclean demons. You see, Jesus also said, woe to you Pharisees, for you travel upon land and sea and you go find some poor pagan and you convert him to your religion 
and you make him twice the son of hell as you are. Do you realize what, now Jesus is saying something extremely shocking that I think few people today even understand. Probably few people then understood. That for this monotheistic Jewish believer in the moral law to go and travel to some pagan world and get some polytheistic idolater who's just really lewd and doesn't care about good and evil the way that the Jew does, for him to be converted to Judaism, there's no other God but one God, and your, your way of killing and committing adultery and all that is wrong. You need to keep the moral commandments. He converts that poor pagan to Judaism. Jesus says he's worse now than he was before. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> do you believe that? Now, I, for one, am not going to say that uh, the Pharisee's wrong in believing in one true God and that he's wrong in believing that adultery is wrong. But that person now is worse off because to God, brothers and sisters, legalism and self-righteousness is worse than your general sin that you could commit in the law. Because in the one hand, a sinner knows that he's doing sins. Maybe that he doesn't care about good and evil. But a Pharisee, in him doing what he thinks is right, thinks he's not a sinner and thinks he's righteous before God and looks down on others and puts himself in a position farther from God and in a worse state. Twice the son of hell, Jesus said, these same people killed the Messiah. Don't be deceived by appearances. Don't be deceived by how they look. Listen to what Jesus said about them. Listen, look what they did to Christ himself. How did they get like that, Jesus says? Well, he says they exchanged one evil spirit for seven more. So they were bad to begin with, but then kicking out that one bad thing, they got seven more bad things. Shocking principle. If you cast out evil, more evil comes. You get worse if you try to get better. If you go to many religions these days, different religions, and you ask, what do I need to do? I, need, I, I, I realize I'm not right. I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I need to be right with God. What do I do? They're going to say, well, stop your sins and try to be better. Do what's right. Keep the commandments. Jesus is teaching us here, yeah, you'll, you'll try to kick out one demon and you'll be filled with seven more vile ones than before. Have you ever experienced that? You ever tried to get better and you got worse? You ever tried to get rid of sins and you became judgmental? You realize judgmentalism is more ugly to God than the sin you were previously committing, as ugly as that sin is. Jesus tells us the history of Israel is one that went from bad to worse from God's perspective. Now, not necessarily from man. See, in the Old Testament, Israel, they were obviously idolaters, disregarding the law of God, worshiping idols, worshiping stones, worshiping trees that they formed into their gods. Then, of course, God judged them. In the Babylonian captivity, 70 years they were in captivity, and God brought them back to the land after 70 years. But what happened is when they got back to the land, this is when Pharisaism took over. This is when the leadership of the people said, you know what? We're not going to go back to our old ways. We're going to cleanse Israel from idolatry. We're going to keep the law. We're going to turn from being sinful to being righteous. 
and we're going to do it, and we're going to succeed. Brothers and sisters, idolatry was bad, but pharisaical idolatry is worse. Because before they knew they weren't obeying, but now they thought they were obeying. And the nation became captive and under bondage to legalism and self-righteousness. And you know what is amazing, brothers and sisters? When Jesus uttered these words, in about 40 years, the nation was about to be destroyed again. The nation was on the brink of destruction at the very moment that they thought they were on the brink of deliverance. At that time, the Pharisees and the people expected deliverance from the Romans. They expected the Messiah to come because they had prepared the way for the Lord. They expected the Messiah to come and to deliver them from the Romans and to bring peace to Israel. At the very time that they thought that was going to happen, they were completely wiped out. In fact, Rome destroyed them because they revolted, thinking it was time to revolt, thinking that God was actually with them. So the Jews said, God is now with us. The time is right. We are righteous. Time to revolt. Time for the kingdom of God to come. And they're completely wiped out. And this time, consider, they're not exiled for 70 years. They're exiled for 2,000 years. What's worse? 70-year exile or 2,000-year exile? You do the figuring. Such is the sin of self-righteousness in rejecting Christ. It's worse. And the judgment is harsher. And yet here's the amazing thing. To this evil and adulterous generation, Jesus Christ came for the purpose of laying his life down and shedding his blood for their sins. And God gives them the sign of Jonah. I believe he gives them the sign of Jonah out of love. As Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites. Ninevites, why? Because God didn't want Nineveh to perish. And he gave them that sign. And in the same way, even though this is a wicked and adulterous generation, it really can't be worse. You can't be worse when you're sinful, ignorant, blind, self-righteous, killing Christ and rejecting him. And yet even then, Christ died for them. Christ died for us. Christ died for evil and adulterous people. Friends, this morning, isn't that a wonderful thing? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of God. That no matter how sinful you are, no matter how wicked you are, no matter, no matter how blasphemous you are, no matter how self-righteous you are and legalistic you are, God does not want you to perish. And God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for us, to bear our sins. And on the cross, Jesus Christ took the cup of wrath that we deserve for all our self-righteousness and for all our godlessness and our evil. And he died to deliver us from our sins and to make us right with God, our great high priest, interceding for sinners. Do you see that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't dying for good people that needed a boost, but he was dying for an evil and adulterous people. He did it because he loves sinners. That's the whole point of the gospel. This radically shocking thing, that he loves you, that he took your place, and that he stands now ready with his blood to forgive and to accept. In this last section, we find an intentional passage of encouragement 
in the face of all that rejection. Jesus is teaching in a house. It's packed with disciples. And uh, his family comes up to want to see him. We don't know why they want to see him. But we can probably guess, based upon other statements in, the, in some of the other Gospels, that they were probably coming to try to deter Jesus because he was putting himself into danger by his preaching. By what Jesus was saying, he was making the Pharisees angry, the leaders of Israel. And perhaps his family wanted to come because it's, it's, there, we indicate in the other Gospels that his family didn't quite believe in him. They didn't quite understand him. They thought he was crazy. And Jesus does a remarkable thing here. They say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are at the door. They want to see you. And Jesus stretches forth his hand toward his disciples. That's the people that are believing in him and sitting at his feet and listening to what he has to say. And he says, who's my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Of course, what is it to do the will of my Father who is in heaven? It's to believe in Jesus, to sit at his feet and listen to what he has to say. They're doing the will of the Father as they sit there listening to the Messiah. Jesus loved and valued his family, but he shows us here that there's a greater and truer relation. A.B. Bruce says the highest brotherhood is based upon spiritual affinity. It wasn't a lack of respect for his family that he said that, but it was pointing to something that was more important. The kingdom of God was more of a reality to Jesus than anything else. And it's clear here that those who believe in Jesus are far more precious in Jesus' sight than sometimes we who believe understand. Jesus calls us family. Isn't that wonderful? He calls us his brothers and his sisters. And that's what Jesus, that's what God, that's what his will is. His will is for you to be his family, not for you to reject him. His will is not for you to reject him and him to punish you. His will is for you to accept Christ and to be welcomed into the family of God. So this is a contrast between what God wants and what God doesn't want in this chapter, men to reject him and call Jesus of the devil. What you do with Jesus will determine your judgment day, as Jesus has already said in 721. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, which is to believe and to understand who he is. So in closing, are you in the family of God? Does Jesus say to you, brother or sister, have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you done the will of the Father that is in heaven? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is but one sign that points to him as our true prophet who tells us about God, our priest who makes us right with God, and our king who rules over us. The resurrection of Christ is the sign of Jonah, the ultimate sign that he is truly the Son of God and of God. You have all the reason in the world to believe, brothers and sisters. 
If you don't believe, it's your problem. It's not God's problem. If you do not believe in Christ, it is not because God is at fault for not giving you enough reason to believe. And you can pray all day and say, God, give me a sign, give me a sign. And Jesus' words, you should be reminded of them, that an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign in the face of evidence that is sufficient. If you don't believe in Jesus, then at this time you are still in your sins without excuse and under condemnation. Don't be one of those people that on judgment day have other people who had less reason to believe than you condemn you because they did believe and you didn't. And understand this, friends, God wants you to be saved because he loves you. And why would you not believe? That's the message. The message is not believe so that you can, you have to now do all these things and, and uh, prove yourself to God. The message is this beautiful message that you've already proven to God you're not a good person. You've already proven to God you deserve to go to hell. You've already proven to God that you, uh, you don't deserve to go to heaven. And yet, God loves you. It's not about you being a good person. It's about you understanding the love of God and the grace of God for you as a sinner. Why would you not believe that? With all the evidence to believe. Why would you not believe it and enjoy the love and the grace of God now and forever? So if you have believed, let me encourage you that Jesus Christ calls you family. Rejoice that you are a child of God, forgiven, saved, and secure in Christ. The Son of God stretches forth his hand to us today in the 21st century, and he calls us his family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your will is for us to be saved, that that's what you want, and that even though we are wicked, truly wicked and sinful, and, and uh, our hearts, Lord, are unbelieving and legalistic, self-righteous, and we continually taunt you by asking for signs, that even then, you don't want us to perish, God. And truly, there's, there is no love like your love. And there is no grace like yours. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace towards us and that you sent your son to die for us. And I just pray that today, Lord, if anyone doesn't believe, they would just consider that they should believe and that they have no reason not to believe. They have every reason to believe. And Lord, for those who have believed, that they would rejoice today in their salvation. Thank you for this beautiful passage of Scripture and this time. In Jesus' name, amen.